the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. As mass shootings remain top of mind in the American consciousness, with bills being argued in both the House and Senate, a new book offers a solution that may be able to bring both sides of the aisle together. Today, we'll speak with Mark Fullman, the author of Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America, to discuss new emerging ideas and how to stop mass shootings in the country. That's coming up next on Detroit Today, but first, the news from NPR. Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson. What drives someone to buy a gun, plan to kill others, and then go out and do it? This is the question on many people's minds after the shootings in Oxford, Buffalo, and Uvalde. And that's because while America is the most violent developed nation in the world and has more guns than any other developed nation, the violence we're seeing is not just about gun availability. It's also about why people choose to use them on others. Mark Fullman is a journalist who has been digging into the question for almost a decade now, and he's come to find some interesting things. Specifically, when uncovering who might commit violence, it's less important to know who the person is and more important to know what their given circumstances are. He's been looking into the emerging field of behavioral threat assessment teams to try to understand when those teams need to intervene in someone's life, when they think someone is getting closer to the precipice of committing grave danger. Fullman recently wrote a book about this called Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. And in it, he uncovered a scary truth about human nature. That given the right circumstances, any one of us might commit mass violence. There is something fundamentally off or there's nothing uh, fundamentally off or psychopathic about shooters. It's the surrounding circumstances and a series of unfortunate events that push them closer to killing others. To stop violence from happening, he suggests the need for pro-social interventions, things like soothing assistance from caregivers, mentors, positive social connections, and social activities for the potentially violent to engage in. That is, we need to be more closely caring for one another. We need to be our brothers and sisters keepers. To talk about what circumstances give rise to mass violence and the proper policy levers to push to stop these things from happening so often, here with us is Mark Fullman. Mark, welcome to Detroit Today. Morning. Thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks for being here. Mark, the book was very interesting. It was a great read, and it really got me thinking about a lot of different things that I think not so many people out in the public think about when it comes to the conversation about mass shootings and gun violence in America. What was your overall point and conclusion, as best you can put it, for people uh, who might not have seen the book yet? Well, I think... You know, a big part of what led me to write this book was um, realizing long ago as I began studying mass shootings and, and building the first public database of them about a decade ago, that there's a lot about this problem that we didn't understand well and to this day that we still don't understand well in terms of the general public's perception of the problem. Um, there are some big myths about who mass shooters are and how they behave, what causes people to become mass shooters. 
Um, and then also just in terms of thinking about solutions and how we can go about doing a better job of solving this problem. It's, it's a complex problem. There's no single thing that causes it, nor is there a single policy that's going to fix it. Um, access to guns, of course, is, is the big issue that we always uh, fiercely debate in the aftermath of these attacks. And that obviously is an important part of the problem, but it's not the only part of the problem. And so I became really interested in the question of what more can we do to try to solve the mass shootings epidemic? And that's what led me to write Trigger Points. You talk about your background. Uh, you started the Bet database, a guide to mass shootings in America with Mother Jones to understand the trends, as you mentioned, of mass shooters. What does the data that you uh, found out uh, stretching back to 2013, what does that tell you? Well, there's some key. There were some key questions that I was investigating with my team back then. Um, this began after the uh, massacre in the movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, in 2012. Um, we wanted to know how often these were occurring, um, and and what was leading to them, what was causing them, who who were the people that were committing attacks like this. And when I went looking for for data, I was startled to find there was there was virtually nothing publicly available at the time. So. We started collecting case data going back 30 years, and um, we were able to, to, to determine that there was a growing trend of these attacks, a specific type of attack where a person, a lone offender, goes into a public place, whether it's a school or a movie theater or a shopping mall, and opens fire seemingly indiscriminately, that that was beginning to happen more. Um, it turned out that that marked the beginning of a trend that was escalating over the past decade, um, attacks were becoming more lethal in many cases. Um, we could, uh, we were able to see that there was a lot of suicidality in these cases, that more than half of the mass shooters were committing suicide as part of the attack. That was an important behavioral pattern in terms of understanding the attack. Um, most of the attacks were being carried out with firearms that were obtained legally. So uh, th these were some of the early data points. But then I also began to understand through my case research and through talking to criminologists and, and uh, other experts in this field known as threat assessment, that these cases were all preceded by behavioral warning signs. And that's a, such an important part of this, this problem that I think was very little understood and still is in terms of the general perception that these attacks don't just come out of nowhere, that in all of these cases, there's a period of escalation where the person is behaving in ways that, that, that are often noticeable to people around them. Uh, this is one of the big myths that we have about mass shootings, that these are all insane people who just snap, quote unquote, as if they're acting impulsively and just suddenly committing a mass attack. And that's just simply not the case with, with these kinds of crimes. Yeah, I think that your book spells out how that's a myth through a lot of different points. But you mentioned the behavioral threat assessment teams that you've been following. And I think for a lot of us, we're not familiar with the term behavioral threat assessment. We don't know exactly what that means. Can you explain to us what that field is and what those teams do? Sure. So I began learning about this work um, shortly after beginning the database project uh, had started hearing that there were cases where mass shootings were actually being stopped, uh, which of course was very intriguing. What was, what was that all about? Um, so what threat assessment is, is a, a multidisciplinary uh, model that brings together expertise in mental health, in education, in law enforcement, in workplace personnel, um, brings together a group of people who 
work to evaluate specific situations where where a person is is causing concern through their behavior and circumstances. Um, the field has existed for about forty years. Was originally developed as a in uh, an effort to prevent political assassination. In fact, is one of the stories that I tell in the book. Um, was dealing decades ago more with celebrity stalking, with workplace violence, and then eventually the model was applied to school violence after Columbine in 1999. Um, so what these teams do is they, when a, when a concerning person comes to their attention, they gather information about the situation by talking to people around the individual, by talking to the individual of concern themselves, and trying to really understand the nature of the alleged or, or observed threatening behavior. What's going on with this person? Why are they um, you know, making communicative threats? Why are they um, angry or desperate? Uh, what's, the, what's sort of the root of the problem here? And then developing a plan to intervene and try to intervene constructively to manage the situation going forward. Um, that's the essence of the work is, is to really um, you know, wrap around a situation like that and manage it so that the person who is potentially planning for violence can be steered away from doing so. Um, the, the field refers to this process as, as the pathway to violence, when a person is escalating toward a violent plan and then taking steps to prepare and carry out an attack. There are steps along the way where that can be detected and where intervention can can help a person and get them away from that process. I think your book does a great job of uh, using specific examples that you found in your research of times when that was successful. And we'll get into some of those in a moment. But before I do that, I am intrigued to know, uh, with such an emerging field and to the extent that it's had success, how prevalent are behavior assessment teams and behavioral assessment in America right now? It's a great question. In some ways, it's difficult to answer because one of the things that's interesting about this field is that as it's developed and grown over the years, it's been in a very decentralized way. There's no standard process for doing this and no single entity that's tracking who's doing it, uh, but it has grown quite a bit. I was able to learn through my research and through spending time with leaders in the field and, and some of the people who pioneered it. Um, but in asking them that question, there was really no clear answer. There are a number of states now, a handful of states in the country that require threat assessment teams in their public school systems. Uh, the state of Virginia was the first to do so in 2008, which came in the aftermath of the terrible massacre at Virginia Tech in 2007. And a number of states have followed. The policy tends to follow where there is tragedy, unfortunately. So um, there are now several states that have this. Um, it is also used in corporate settings and Fortune 500 companies. Uh, there are uh, federal law enforcement agencies that have specialized teams. The FBI has a team at the Behavioral Analysis Unit that does this work and also offers resources and assistance to local communities throughout the country when they're asked for help. Uh, that's a story that I tell in the book as well. Um, the Secret Service does research and has done this work historically. Um, it's in some police departments around the country. So it, it is a growing field, um, but there is not uh, there is no number of threat assessment teams that can be pinned down at this point um, in terms of uh, the, the national picture. Um, but, it, but there are quite a few of them now throughout the country. 
We're speaking with Mark Fullman, who is the National Affairs Senior Editor at Mother Jones and author of the recent book, Trigger Points, and uh, the, the author of the book, Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. You mentioned how uh, a lot of the behavior threat assessment teams will form after in the wake of mass shootings. But another thing your book mentions is how um, after uh those teams are formed, uh, funding for them can run out because there's not a lot of things that you can point to in terms of successes when you divert a threat, right? If a threat doesn't happen, no one says, oh, well, we were successful there. So it kind of makes it a little bit more difficult to warrant uh, spending the money on those types of things with budget crunches and things around the nation. Do you have in your book a great example or just what you thought was one of the uh, better anecdotes that you had on how uh, behavior threat assessment can work that can be an example for people out there who haven't seen it uh, personally. Sure. Well, as, as you point out, it, it's tricky with, with this field of work to, to show results because really you're proving a negative when you are preventing violence. So how do you know you've prevented violence if it doesn't occur? Um, but there are many cases that I was able to, to go inside for, for the book uh, where I was able to see the way this process works. And these are situations where you're talking about individuals who are setting up for some pretty scary situations, who were in serious crisis, who were showing um, strong signs of planning violence and taking steps to prepare for it. Um, uh, you know, through a wide range of circumstances that a threat assessment team was able to observe and analyze. Uh, so one of the ways that I'm able to bring readers inside this process in the book is through a program in Salem, Oregon, in the Salem-Kaiser School District, which is a large public school system in, uh, in that part of the country that's had a team since Columbine. They were one of the first to pioneer this model um, two plus decades ago. And I, I tell several stories in the book about cases that I was able to observe over time uh, beginning in 2019 in their program. One is the story of a high school junior who I call Brandon in the book, who was uh, raising real concern uh, by some threatening comments he was making. Uh, one day spoke uh, to another student at a bus stop about bringing, he said he was going to bring a gun to school on Friday. Don't come, he told his, his peer, don't come to school on Friday. I'm going to shoot up the school with my dad's gun. Um, and other students overheard this and one reported it to uh, a faculty member. So this came to the attention of the team. The team begins quickly gathering information about the situation. Brandon, it turns out, had been on their radar in previous years for some similar comments about school shootings. Now he had become more specific about what he was going to do, which was a significant point of alarm for the team. Uh, they were gathering other information from teachers who knew him and other peers. They went and talked with his uh, with his mother and with Brandon in the home the day that he made those comments because they wanted to ascertain whether or not he had access to a firearm, as he said that he did in, in these alleged comments. Uh, so a, a school resource officer on the team interviewed him and his mother, was able to determine that he did not have access to a weapon at that time which um, was a relief in terms of any concern about imminent danger. But then the question became, what are we going to do about Brandon going forward? uh, He was a kid who was spiraling into crisis. There was some real deterioration going on in his life. Um, He was starting to fail out of classes. Uh, There were signs that he might be suicidal, which is a significant concern, of course, uh, on, on its own merits, but also, as I was saying earlier, many school and mass shooting cases involve suicidality. And so looking at all this information together, the team 
stepped in quickly and tried to intervene in constructive ways to get Brandon onto a different path to help him. And they did this by extending him some counseling support, by building an individual education plan for him that could uh, work with his interests and, and strengths as a student. Um, he was an intelligent kid, but he was struggling, had a lot of problems. This is one of the sort of counterintuitive things that happens in a lot of these cases. Um, often very intelligent people can be in crisis too. Um, and they may be planning methodically for something terrible, but what they're really doing is, is, is making a desperate cry for help. Um, and so by working with him in these ways, and also with the family in this case, uh, working closely with his mother to make sure that he didn't have access to any dangerous uh, material or, or a firearm to watch closely how he was using the internet and social media, which has become a real increasing um, factor in a lot of these cases in terms of uh, people going down a bad path, especially young people. By doing all these things, they were able to help Brandon. And I was able to watch this over time, over months, to see how the team would continually reevaluate in their, in their weekly sessions what was going on with him, how he was doing, how he was behaving, um, and be, and could begin to see the improvement. And he was able to complete his uh, junior year. He did fairly well that summer, uh, worked with a counselor and talked some about how he had wanted to um, earn money to get a car. He was starting to develop goals in that way. Came back and had his senior year. There, there were some ups and downs. This is not a, a linear process, and, and it's there's no easy fix here. But in general, Brandon was doing better, and he yeah. was thinking less and less about violent ideas. Yeah. He was not planning for violence anymore, and he was he was able to go on and graduate. And from the perspective of the team, this was a successful intervention. This was a person who was clearly planning violence in some specific ways, who was then no longer doing so, um, who was helped. Yeah, you, really specific examples throughout the book. That one that you mentioned was uh, one that certainly stuck out, as well as several others, both in the scholastic and out-of-school context, as we're speaking with Mark Woolman, the author of Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings. And we want to hear from you out there listening as well. What do you think is causing so much gun violence in America? And in, in the absence of gun control, what do you think are the best actions that we can take to stop gun violence? What are signs that might make you uh, tell somebody that you think, hey, I know someone who might be likely to commit mass violence like we've discussed here. Or are you a counselor, teacher, police officer, psychologist who has had run-ins in these situations? I'd be curious to hear from you what you think drives people to commit violence and what you've done to intervene in those actions. Give us a call, 313-577-1019, and we will fit you into the conversation as we can. 313-577-1019. Mark, I'm coming up against a break, but I do have one more uh, question that I want to pitch to you before we take that break. Specifically, I kind of want to know from you, considering you've seen the research, you've spoken to the people about it, what do you think is causing so much of the gun violence, the rise in gun violence in America? It's a big question um, and, and an important one. I think it's the, the answer is, is multifaceted. Uh, of course, it's undeniable that we have an enormous quantity of firearms in the country. They're easy to access in many places. Um, so access, of course, is an essential question here in terms of how often this is happening. But beyond that, I think, you know, some other factors that have really begun to contribute to this more, in, in my view, empirically, in studying cases and in the rise of cases, we have 
increasingly volatile political atmosphere in our country, that kind of polarization that is in some ways normalized a little bit more the the sense of grievance and anger in our politics and and I think validates in some ways that that angry and threatening behavior is is normal. Um, we know that shooters are are paying attention to uh, political and cultural narratives. It comes up in a lot of case evidence and, and in the ways that they imitate their predecessors, the, the so-called copycat problem, which we can talk about more uh, later that, you know, this is a big factor. Um, the the role of digital media and social media has, has continued to fuel the problem in some concerning ways. Um, and I think also the stresses of the pandemic have contributed to a rise in gun violence more broadly, and that's also playing into this problem. So it's it's a complicated answer, but I think there are a number of factors that are kind of converging um, and, and causing this problem to evolve in some ways as well. And that's part of the mission of threat assessment, too, is to, to study and adapt to the ways in which um, threats and, and this form of violence are, are changing. That's right. And uh, 313-577-1019 is the phone call here. Uh, good points there from you, Mark. We are going to come back on the other side as we've got Dan in Southwest as well as Jerry in Detroit. We're going to get into more of our discussion with Mark Fullman, the author of the Trigger Points book. We're going to get to you about that copycat question you mentioned, as well as the new legislation that the Senate is considering. All that's coming up as Detroit Today continues in just a moment. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson with journalist and author Mark Fullman, author of the book Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. As I mentioned, we do want to hear from you. What do you think is the cause of the rise in mass shootings in America? Are you a counselor, teacher, police officer, psychologist, someone who interacts with individuals? Uh, what do you think is driving uh, this change and what do you do to intervene? What do you think are the best things that we can do to intervene in this issue? Give us a call. 313-577-1019. I've got Dan in Southwest, Jerry in Detroit, and Dan in Arbor. We're going to get to you in a moment. But, Mark, I would like to uh, ask you one more question before we get to the call, specifically about the new proposal that the senators are arguing to limit gun violence right now. It includes money to encourage states to pass and implement red flag laws to remove guns from potentially dangerous people, also money for school safety and mental health resources, expanded background checks for gun purchases or for people between the ages of 18 and 21 with penalties for illegal straw purchases by connected criminals. What do you make of this legislation? It's it's a, a really interesting moment, I think, with this this issue of gun violence in our country, because as I'm sure all your listeners know, we've been stuck in a in a certain political dynamic with this for so long. And there's a prevailing sense of of inaction and to a large degree hopelessness or, or just pure outrage about how you know we have this idea that we nothing ever changes, that that nothing ever gets done at the federal level. Uh, which in large part has been true for for many years now. So 
um, at, at the same time, what this bill does is take some steps, but I think for from the perspective of, of many people, isn't nearly enough to, to address the issue of access to firearms and so on. And at the same time, it's it's tackling some significant parts of this problem that you mentioned the red flag laws. This is one tool that goes directly to what we're talking about and to what um, people who tend to defend the, the, the kind of pro-gun right status quo of the country often point to immediately after an attack, which is the issue of of keeping guns away from people who are dangerous, who, who may have serious mental health problems. Uh, red flag laws do that by um, removing firearms from people uh, through a court process where a judge will deem whether or not a person is dangerous to themselves or others. Um, and, and shouldn't have a firearm. So if that were to become more widespread nationally, that's a policy now that's in 19 states. It's grown a lot in recent years. Um, that becomes a significant tool potentially for um, taking guns away from people who may be causing serious danger. Um, the, the question of funding, funding school security, mental health, other kind of broader um, community approaches to solving this problem. It's a mixed picture in my view, but it, these are steps forward in a way, in ways that, that could be significant that we haven't seen in many years. And that in and of itself is important in my view. If this bill is to pass, it will show that we can make progress legislatively on this issue in some ways. And, and my sense is that, is that that would then create momentum for there to be more. It's time to get into some of those phone calls. And right now we have Dan in Ann Arbor. Dan, you're on Detroit Today. Dan, are you there? Dan, we'll go back to Dan in a moment. Right now we have Dan in Southwest. Dan, you are on Detroit Today. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Cho Swang He of the Virginia Tech shooter, Eric Harris, the Columbine shooter, and James Holm, the Aurora shooter, and so many more examples, uh, were all taking antidepressants. What are your thoughts on the role of psychiatric medication in causing people to become violent? And why don't we talk about it? Is it perhaps because the pharmaceutical companies buy ads and are owned by the same index funds as the media, whereas the gun manufacturers don't spend that kind of money, a, a sort of bourgeoisie cultural hegemony? Well, Mark, we've got a question about uh, use of medication. Has your research turned up anything in a connection in terms of use of medication and gun violence? Yeah, this is a, a question that comes up um, fairly frequently around mass shootings. There, there is there is not any um, scientific research to support the idea that antidepressants or other kinds of um, psychiatric medication are a cause of mass shootings. I've never seen or heard of any evidence supporting that. Um, there are cases where perpetrators have been taking medication um, or have been undergoing mental health treatment, um, but it's not, it's not a matter of causation in terms of, of case evidence or post-case analysis. Uh, it does also, this question points to, a, I think, an important broader point because people often are seeking kind of a, you know, a single clear explanation for what causes people to become mass shooters. And, yeah. and there isn't one. Right. Uh, that, that is another one of the myths we have about this problem. It's not caused by violent media or video games. It's not caused by taking drugs. Um, it's not caused all by mental illness. There, there are, in all of these cases, a complex set of 
behavioral and circumstantial factors that lead a person to go down this pathway of to violence and commit an attack. Um, and this is really specifically important with the blame on mental illness, which I think relates to the notion of whether or not drugs are involved. Um, we, we see so much of that blame in, in our kind of cultural and political arguments about this issue. Um, but that also is just not true. When you look at the case evidence, mental illness is not the fundamental cause of a mass shooting. These are planned out attacks. These are not crazy people who are just snapping. Um, no mass shooter is a mentally healthy person. That, that is uh, self-evident. Um, but addressing the issue of mental health is complicated in this equation because we can't just blame it on that and expect the mental health field to solve this. It's, it's a whole range of factors that go into these attacks and how they occur. Thank you for your call. Again, that was a, a very interesting point. I think you're right, Mark. You, you mentioned in your book how many of the individuals that uh, participated in these events, you know, they were holding down jobs or they were able to get good grades. They actually did have friends, unlike otherwise reported. So it's not so much uh, this myth that we're always seeing, but uh, just understanding, hey, what are the actual things that we need to look into that uh, are, are connecting the behavioral threats, as you said, in terms of some of these individuals. Right now, we have Judith in Clinton. Clinton Township. Judith, you are next on Detroit Today. Judith? Am I on? You are yeah. on. Go ahead. Uh, I am on. Uh, I was struck uh, once again this morning um, by that the, you say the, uh, these people and are the persons who do these things, and it's guys that do this. I don't believe it's ever women. And would the author, uh, your author, please comment on why this is so prevalent among, uh, I guess we tend to say angry white guys, but but that we seldom hear about women acting out in this way. The book does touch on this, Mark. Uh, The vast majority are done by men, although there are circumstances of uh, women also being involved. Do you have an answer that you found out as to why it's predominantly men? Yeah, this is another intriguing question that comes up with this because mass shooters are overwhelmingly male. Uh, There are there are rare cases of women who have done this over the years, too. So the question then is, what can gender tell us about uh, the problem, uh, both in terms of of its nature and then how to prevent it? Um, And this speaks also to a really significant kind of core idea here and another myth that we have about mass shootings, which is the notion that mass shooters can be profiled in a predictive way. Um, if you, that is to say, I think the expectation that if you can identify a certain set of characteristics, uh, a type of person that you might be able to predict who can do this. Uh, and so, of course, uh, gender would be a part of that. But that's not possible. The field of threat assessment through through decades of research has has determined that, that, that there is no predictive character profile, gender included, because, of course, it's just it's too broad based. There there are many, many, many men who who have a lot of the problems that mass shooters have, who display a lot of the similar behaviors, you know, whether it's interest in graphic violence and guns, um, making threats, threatening comments on social media, um, being depressed, angry, having grievances, uh, seeking revenge, seeking justice, all of these things that we see mass shooters do in these cases 
Um, those kinds of behaviors and thinking aren't predictive. Um, many, many men have serious life problems who would never dream of committing a mass shooting. Um, but there is a question about what does gender tell us in terms of the behavior, uh, in terms of the circumstances of a person who is who is going through this escalating process and planning violence. Um, and I think, you know, the, the people do raise valid questions in terms of what is it culturally that drives this to happen. Um, one thing that we see in a lot of cases is a lot of rage and grievance that's articulated by the perpetrators as they are um, escalating toward an attack. And when you talk to experts in threat assessment on the clinical side, the mental health experts, one thing that that, that they have identified specifically is that, that depression, clinical depression and suicidality in, in men and boys um, can often take that form of rage and, and grievance. And so that, that may be a significant clue to a behavioral process going on with a person who may be at risk for this kind of dangerous behavior. Thanks so much again for your call, Judith. That was a very interesting point, and I think one that was great on touching on when it comes to this. As it's it's a fact, it's it's true that uh, the the majority are male, and this also means that we have an open line for you to get involved in the conversation right now. Three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. What do you think? Uh, what do you make of the rise in mass shootings right now? What can we do to stop it? Uh, are you someone who has interaction with uh, youth out there? Uh, what have you done? What have you seen uh, to help uh, guide someone on the path or even if you've known someone in your family who you had concerns about is there a story that you have you can share that with us here today on Detroit Today 313-577-1019 we're going next to Scott in Westland Scott you are on Detroit Today go ahead with your comment uh, hello um, well I, I just wanted to uh, remind everybody that um, according to the Washington Post the uh, United States Court of Appeals in the Ninth Circuit in the state of California uh, ruled that California's statute um, limiting uh, purchases of, quote, uh, center fire semi-automatic firearms uh, by people under the age of 21 was struck down in May, and it was ruled unconstitutional by a, and uh, there was a three-judge panel, and I guess that the uh, a Trump-appointed uh, judge, you know, wrote the opinion and, uh, you know, he, he ruled the age limit unconstitutional. So, uh, I, I, so I, and again, uh, the, I, personally, I, I believe, you know, in the idea of, you know, increasing the age limit, because in the case of the last two sh- notable shootings that we had, the one in the supermarket in Buffalo and uh, the one in Texas at the school, uh, that would have at least slowed down the procurement of weapons by the perpetrator, you know, because they were both 18. Uh, and actually, I think that the uh, California statute is maybe a little unrealistic in that it specifies centerfire firearms. Uh, unfortunately, if you recall the Royal Oak post office shooting, which I think occurred in 1990, the murder weapon in that office shooting was a Ruger 1022, which is basically a uh, 22 carbine, you know, a, a 22 rifle. It's for like normally for, you know, shooting squirrels and stuff like that, you know, so. Uh, but anyway, California, ha- I guess under federal law, the uh, federal law makes a distinction between handguns and long guns. So basically, you, you have to be uh, over 21 or over to purchase a handgun under federal law, uh, whereas an 18-year-old can purchase a long gun. So 
Uh, I see this is probably heading, you know, this was the U.S. Court of Appeals. Uh, It's probably going to end up in the Supreme Court. But again, we got at least one adverse ruling, you know, on age limits, you know, from the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals in the Ninth Circuit in California Mm -hmm. uh, regarding California's statute limiting the purchase of uh, centerfire semi-automatic weapons by uh, anyone under the age of 21. That is true. As uh, legislation is being put forward to try to limit these things, and thanks for your call there, Scott, uh, we are seeing courts getting involved. Mark, do you have, uh, have you been monitoring that uh, ruling in California, and do you have any comments related to your research on it? Well, well, I would say what's interesting here in this on the specific point is that in, in this new um, gun deal in the U.S. Senate, there is on the table is the idea of limiting um, access or, or more tightly regulating access for uh, individuals under the age of 21. And it's interesting if you look at how they're going about doing that, because they, they talk about, I mean, the legislation is still being written, but in the, the principle that they're looking at is the idea that you would investigate more rigorously someone who's 18 years old, who's trying to buy a firearm by looking into their uh, juvenile records and, and police records, potentially, uh, um, and doing this presumably with a more robust process than our current system of background checks. So what I think that points to is the, a, a growing understanding that um, an individual at that age uh, may have different kinds of risk or more significant risk um, in terms of buying a firearm, because we see that in these cases. And it's not just the last two. Um, of course, many school shootings, we're talking about juveniles who carry them out. Um, and there, there are many cases historically of young people doing this. So the question of the change of age is an interesting one in terms of a next step uh, among several of potentially regulating firearms more. Yeah, I do find it interesting that a lot of these things are interested in uh, the age of the perpetrator, uh, though there still are several that happen outside of and after school. So uh, I am intrigued as to how we can do more to uh, be worried about those concerns also, right? Because a mass shooting outside of a school is still a mass shooting that affects us all. And- Absolutely. And, and you're also talking about a much wider range of perpetrators, including in age, uh, when you get into the broader picture of mass shootings in our country and in, in workplaces, that tends to be more middle-aged men who are carrying out those crimes. So this isn't just a matter of age by any stretch, but that but it is a interesting data point among many with the problem. Absolutely. And, you know, we've got some great callers still lined up. Melissa in Metro Detroit, Jerry in Detroit, Scott in Westland, Rick in Roseville. We will be getting to you, but as we head into our our next break that means we're going to have opportunities for your calls out there as well 313-577-1019 get involved in the conversation what can we do to curtail mass shootings what do you think is the cause we want to hear from you 313-577-1019 more from detroit today in just a moment Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson, joined by Mark Fullman, a journalist and author of the new book, Trigger Points Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America, with a very interesting and thoughtful conversation on different approaches that we can take outside of the standard set that we say about gun control and things to reduce mass shootings in our nation. And that leads me to the phones again as we have Melissa in Metro 
Metro Detroit. Melissa, please go ahead with your question. Right. Good morning. Good morning to your guest. Right. So I'm really taken aback by the word threat, threat assessment being used to describe our children. Um, it's a, you know, it's a counterproductive word is how I feel about it, because it's, it's a judgment word and it's rooted in fear, not compassion. And therefore, it's going to increase our fear, increase our judgment, increase our punishment. Um, and therefore, it's counterproductive because it won't get us to the point where we want to reduce violence significantly. You know, you bring up an extra interesting point, Melissa, because uh, with language, the words we use are very important and it can be a very nuanced topic. Sometimes it can be difficult to even figure out what the right words are. I know in the juvenile criminal context, for example, uh, instead of saying that a, a juvenile is guilty, they'll say responsible, things like that, and, and trying to have a consideration for uh, this. But she raises an excellent point, and I bring that to you, Mark. Is there concern with the use of threat, for example, uh, prejudging our children or people who would be involved in the system as a threat before anything actually happened with them? Yeah, it's a really interesting question and it's and an interesting conundrum for the field from my perspective as, as a journalist who's dug deeply into it. And, and I know there's discussion of this in the field. There, there's been discussion of whether or not there should be a different term for it. Um, it, you know, it, it is describing the nature of the problem and the concern that the caller is raising in effect is opposite to what the work actually seeks to do, which is to not be punitive. It's to be constructive. It's, it's prevention work that is intended to uh, prevent crime, to, to be constructive and not to, to punish or criminalize people um, to try to stop them from getting to the point where that happens, particularly in a school setting. Um, but it, it, it is true that the term does sound ominous and, 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 and dark in some ways. Um, and so one, I think one of the issues with this, this field of work is the ways in which it engages in communities, raises community awareness, and um, cultivates community engagement. This is a very important part of the process because so many threat cases begin with ordinary people speaking up with concern and bringing it to the attention of a team that is then going to try to intervene constructively. Um, and there are barriers to that, including the perception that someone will be treated poorly or um, will be uh, stigmatized or, um, you know, kicked out or, or put in, in jail. Um, so it's really important and I think incumbent upon the field to do more to try to engage communities about what the nature of this work is. I've been thinking about this a lot too recently in terms of the, the atmosphere in the country since Uvalde in particular. There's so much fear. You look at, there's some remarkable polling that came out that showed, you know, parents throughout the country in, in very high numbers, I think quite understandably, and I say this as, an, as a parent myself, are concerned about their children in school. Um, but I think that the fear has, has become disconnected from the reality that schools by and large are still very safe places. And, and I've been thinking about the idea that if you have more of this type of model, of this community-based prevention model in place, and maybe that's a better way to refer to it, to, to threat assessment, that if, if communities know this is there, perhaps there would be less fear, um, knowing that there's a system in place and people in place with training who are uh, able to address situations of concern. Um, so I think you're right, and the call is right, that the optics of this are important too, the ways in which we talk about it um, and understand clearly what it is we're doing to address this problem. 
Melissa, I really appreciate your concern and your thoughtful call. It was an excellent point. And I do have a brief follow-up on Melissa's question, which, again, I thought was very thoughtful. It's uh, in terms of assurances, right? Uh, one of the things your book gets into is allowing people to get involved, uh, whether voluntarily or if they are referred to it through another person, with dignity, right? And, and hopefully for something that doesn't necessarily reflect on them negatively because they tried to have an intervention in their future. You could think of a child maybe who was involved in this process and then has difficulty going to college or getting a job afterwards because it's on their record. Are there any assurances or things that we can do, uh, guidelines in place to uh, allow or, or make sure to that it's not prejudging an individual that would be uh, part of this community assessment, as you just mentioned? Yeah, I think it's a really important question. And this this also goes to the, to the issue of community awareness and, and engagement because um, you also need a process of, of accountability for this to make sure it's Absolutely. being done well. And that requires some level of transparency, but that's tricky with cases like this because you're talking about very delicate situations a lot of the time um, that, you know, I think one of the things that a threat assessment team does in trying to work with an individual and with families is to say, you know, we're, we're going to do this with discretion. Um, we're going to help you in the ways that you need help. Uh, we're going to try to do that and, and, and do that without, you know, um, creating a sense of fear. Right. Um, but that can be a tricky thing to do depending on the circumstances. So it's, it's um, I think it's a big challenge with this, with this work, but ultimately when I, in settings where I've seen it done well, it can be done to remarkable effect. And it's really about getting people the help that they need in, in, in cases often quite desperately. That, that is what defines a lot of these cases. And, you know, we can look at the case that happened recently last year in Michigan, very tragic case in Oxford Township with the Oxford High School attack. Um, if you look at what that individual was going through, what we know so far about what's been reported and come out in court documents. Uh, this was a, a young person who was in extreme crisis for a long period of time prior to attacking. Um, fundamentally, this process is about getting that person the help that they need before it's too late. You know, a very good point. And uh, we've got a bunch of calls here and we're going to try to get you to all of you as we can. And Jerry in Detroit, you are next on Detroit Today. Thanks for holding and go ahead with your comment and question. All right. Finally getting on. I didn't think didn't think I would. And we're going to get you in there, Jerry. I got your back. OK, uh, two quick questions if you have have time. Um, first, um, I want to know from the guest what he what he thinks of those things of the justification of um, of you know, those who try to justify having the same weapons and firepower the military has. And also, um, if he thinks the, um, the, um, the sort of the, the rhetoric and the, um, the behavior of former President Donald Trump has anything to do with the, um, with the toxic, toxic political and social environment in this country. Uh, thanks again for the question. Yeah, Mark, you mentioned earlier that uh, uh, pol politization, um, how far apart we are, might be driving this mass shooting. And the caller also asks about access to military-grade weaponry. What are your thoughts and comments on that? Yeah, well, um, you know, we've just been discussing access and gun regulation, and it's not really the focus of, of the book. As I said earlier, you know, the book is is looking at what else can we do to address the problem. But certainly access to weapons, of course, is intrinsic to the problem of mass shootings. And I think I, you know, personally, like most Americans, um, am of the view that we, we do need more effective regulation to uh, mitigate some of this violence, and not just with mass shootings, with gun violence in general. Um, 
the, going beyond that, the question of uh, kind of growing extremism and grievance in the country, this is a rising factor with mass shootings. I've documented that in, in my reporting for Trigger Points and also in some of my recent work for Mother Jones, that when we look at some of these mass shooting cases, um, there is a, a more significant role that extremist thinking is playing, whether that's political, ideological, uh, gender-based. There's a growing factor of violent misogyny in a lot of these cases. Um, that matters. Uh, it's not the only thing that's determinative in these cases, but um, it's an area of growing concern for experts in threat assessment. And I think that it's empirically the case that we know this has been driven by our political climate in some ways in recent years. So in that sense, the answer is yes. I think that has contributed more to this problem in recent years. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the book doesn't say that none of that uh, factors in, but just looking at things that we can do in our political climate now to make an impact. Lawrence in Farmington Hills, you're next on Detroit Today. Go ahead with your question. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Um, my question is in regard to how um, a young person, 18 years old, fresh out of high school, can afford will, uh, military-grade weaponry, and which costs in excess of $3,000 a piece, plus the, the um, ammunition, which costs hundreds of dollars. How can a, a young person with no support, um, supposedly no support, um, act alone in acquiring these items? Yeah, that's a good point. Mark, does your book or your research get into uh, how they have access to these weapons, getting their limited resources? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think there's a wide range uh, depending on the case situation. Uh, one thing that's notable here, especially with young people, is that the majority of weapons that are used in school shootings and mass shootings by, by young men and, and juveniles are taken from the home. Um, either the, the, their own home or in some cases the homes of other people, relatives or friends. So that's one way in which they're getting access that isn't uh, doesn't require having uh, you know financial resources. Uh, there are some interesting cases where young, um, where teenagers have, have been quite resourceful in, in funding their firearms. There's one case I'm thinking of in California from a few years back where a, um, a kid was using making money off YouTube, a YouTube channel that he'd established. Um, through, and and advertising revenue to to get enough money to to purchase a gun. Um, so there, I think there's a range of activity that um, again goes to the point that with with all of these cases, you're talking about a complex set of factors that are in play, and that you know the the prevention model of threat assessment is going to address uh, through this collaborative expertise to to pull together information. Um, as broadly as possible in a concerning situation and identify how to step in and get in the way and disrupt violence before it occurs. And I think we could be focusing more on prevention in this way. We, we put so much energy and so many resources into reaction, into response, you know, target hardening buildings, more police, more security cameras, uh, active shooter drills, all of these things are about response, but there's more we can do with prevention, in my view. And that's why I focused on it for the book. I think it was a good point for you to focus on that. And thanks again for your call, Lawrence, because, again, a lot of this has to deal with we know what the political climate is here, whether we think it should be or not. What can we do right now with what we have to maybe convince people to get together and actually make an impact on this really important subject? Mark. 
I want to thank you so much again for uh, joining us here on Detroit Today. It's been uh, fantastic having you on. And uh, your book, again, like I said, I'd highly encourage people who want to uh, think about alternative uh, ways that we can go about or alternative um, factors that we could look into to make an impact uh, to pick it up. Trigger Points, it's a great book. Thanks again for your time, Mark. Thanks. It's a pleasure talking with you. Appreciate it. This has been Detroit Today on 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. The show is produced by Sam Corey. Program director is Joan Isabella. The uh, technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. Join us tomorrow when we're going to talk to Chuck Klosterman about his new book, The 90s. Who out there hasn't experienced the 90s? I know you remember the 90s. We're going to get all into it tomorrow. Make sure you're here at 9 a.m. bright and early for Detroit Today. Until then, we will see you next show.